Well, let's go to God in prayer uh, as we uh, enter his word. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that we have each and every week. In fact, each and every day that we can come to you, to your word, and have you speak to us. We pray that uh, you would use this time as a way to continue that process in our life where we are changed into more and more the image and likeness of Christ, that we may live the way he lived, love the way he loved. Do this, we pray, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started our series in Philippians. Uh, It's only going to be a couple weeks long. I think it's five weeks or so. Unlike Ephesians, I think we went through that and it was like 18 weeks. But we're, so we got five weeks, we got four more to go. Last week, we focused on living worthy and what does it mean to live worthy? And it was to receive the graces that God had given us through Christ. And, and one of those is the, the grace of believing in him. And then the second grace that we were given was to suffer with Christ, to recognize that what we experience in life, those difficult times, are our opportunity to live with Christ and recognize his suffering as a part of our life. And now as we head into chapter 2 today in Philippians, we're going to We're going to see how Paul continues to develop this idea of what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this passage from Philippians 2 is often used to describe what servanthood looks like. Now, if you've grown up in the church, this idea of servanthood is so ingrained in you from the time you start that it doesn't really seem that radical. It's ingrained into Christian culture that we serve one another. That's why we have deacons who who help in serving, and we have elders who watch over and care and, and serve one another. But for the people who were first reading this letter that Paul sent them, it was a little bit different. And I think one way that we can get our minds in the mindset of these first century Christians is through docudramas. Does anyone know what a docudrama is? Two people. Okay, so this is a combination of something that I love and Emily loves. Docu, like a documentary. Drama, like a drama show, right? I like history and watching, watching uh, documentaries and things like that. This is a way that we can watch historical things together. There's things like uh, the rise of empires, the Ottomans, where it'll describe history, but also uh, develop characters so you can try to get to know who those people were. There's things called the last czar, or, or there's other ones like United 93 that would be considered a docudrama. The combination of historical information along with the Development of character, docudrama, all right? So if you watch any of these docudramas that are about historical figures, particularly rulers or kings or so on, what you'll find out is there's kind of one way that they thought leadership should look like. 
powerful leaders are depicted as strong commanders. They're, uh, they're depicted as military tacticians. They're, they're people who are, are, are not going to take no for an answer that you're going to listen to them. They're going to demand respect one way or another. It's, it's these people who are working to expand the kingdom or the empire that they are in charge of. They're demanding this honor, demanding this respect, not serving. You can think of people like Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came to power at the age of 20. And before he died at the age of 33, in his 13-year reign, he conquered Greece and so many other places, and, and he would even go on to suggest his own divine status that he had a heroic-type leadership that should be worshipped. This was the time before Christ. Augustus would come after, well, kind of in the same time period, and he too would, would be this great organizational leader, this military technician, this, this military power. He would develop and he would conquer regions. And he too would be almost worshipped as divine, people who followed him. Other leaders too that we could think of is Mehmet II is the, in the Ottoman Empire. He came to power at a young age and then his dad actually take the, took the power away from him. He was like 13 or something like that and then they didn't think he was ready. So they took the power away but then he came to power again and he said, I'm going to con- conquer Constantinople this great Byzantine city that no one could conquer, that it was impenetrable by the, the walls that they had around it. And he used this military might of his people to come and create and reduce those walls to rubble. This city that was almost seemed that it was protected by God now fell to the hands of the Ottomans. If you are looking to be a powerful person and a powerful leader, there was but one way to do that, and it was to follow the likes of Alexander the Great. It was to follow the likes of Augustus and and Mehmet, to show that power in a display of force and force others to follow along with you. But that's not what we find in Scripture. We, we don't find people demanding loyalty from followers, forcing them through power and might, through military reign. Instead, let's see what we find when we look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to start at page 951. Uh, that's 951 of those Bibles that are in your seats. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one mind and spirit, or being in one spirit and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility... Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each 
of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus would have grown up knowing the stories about Alexander the Great. He would have grown up knowing what it looks like on earth if you want to have people follow what type of leadership you should display. The Israelites, too, perhaps would have been familiar with some domineering leadership. You could think of of back to Joshua and in the conquest of the land and how military might and God uh, were used to gain the land. You think of the work of David and how he was considered a great military man. But the history of Israel is also familiar with servanthood. They were familiar with being a servant-type people if they thought back to their heritage and, and their ancestors who were in Egypt, knowing servanthood because of slavery in their history. Slavery and suffering at the hands of other domineering Egyptian leaders. It was assumed, though, that that when the Messiah would come, that this Messiah would display those types of traits. This type of military tactician who would then start conquering regions around and enacting God's reign in the area. It was assumed that the Messiah would would come with power and force. And yet that's not what we read here in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus showed a new model of leadership. Hear these words from somewhere. Nope, I don't have them in here. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul commands the Philippians to have this same mindset. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. What follows is the description of of what that mindset looks like. How Christ, who 
who was in the very nature did of with very nature God did not use that to his own advantage instead emptying himself and and becoming a person incarnating himself as a baby like the baby that we were hearing earlier this morning fully human and fully God but even when he would become older in his 20s he would not lord it over people like the Gentile leaders would. Instead, he would say that he came to serve, not be served. So if we're going to live in the way of Christ, it must start out in this aspect of humility. Whatever situation we're in in life, we, we begin from this place of humility. Literally, the word means lowliness. Lowliness and humility is the the opposite of entitlement, we could say. Entitlement, perhaps we know people who feel entitled. Perhaps we ourselves at one time did, in fact, feel entitled to certain things. Entitlement has a focus on the self. It says, you owe me. You owe me. You should be doing things for me. I'm entitled to you doing this. But that's not not what we're talking about. That's the complete opposite. Instead, living a life of humility is completely different. It regards others more. It honors others more. A few years ago, we used this line to describe what humility was. It's not thinking of yourself less or sorry, not thinking of less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I'll repeat that because I messed it up the first time. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Another way to put it that N.T. Wright would say is, you're not the most important person in the room. You're not the most important person in the room. Society, though, attempts to tell us that we ourselves are the most important person in the room no matter where you go. It's baked into advertising, right? McDonald's. What is their slogan or what was their slogan for a long while? Have it your way trying to set up this idea that you are the most important person in the room. That's, that's what we do with service industries. We want to have things our way. We want to have the, the, the creature comforts that we want. But in reality, we are not the most important person in the room. It's the person sitting next to you. It's the person sitting in the aisle in front of you. The most important person is not in the seat that you're sitting in. If you take it to this level of church, the most important person in the room for me is not standing here. Maybe it's up in the balcony. Maybe that's the most important person in the room. There are people there, don't worry. Maybe it's the person sitting at one of these tables. Maybe it's the, the person sitting in one of the chairs laying back. Maybe it's a person sitting in a chair with their eyes closed because they had a really rough day at work and they they need to, to sleep a little bit. The most important person is not me, it is someone else. 
And you can think about that yourself. Who is the most important person in the room? I'm not it. I am not at the center of the all, uh, center of it all. So we work through our lives recognizing that we are not at the center, we are not the most important person, that each and every individual that we interact with is now the most important person that we need to give attention to. And it's completely opposite of our selfish desires. We like things our way. And in, in true fashion, as I was preparing for this sermon series, God gave me a wonderful example from my own life of selfishness. If you noticed when the kids were up here before and Mindy asked, how many of you like swimming? My hand did not raise, and all of my kids did. A couple weeks ago, we were at our, our neighbor's pool and and Emily asked me, well, why don't you get in the pool with the boys? And my response was, no, you know, I think they're all right. They're doing fine. Um, you know, we each have our own gifts. Later on, we were reflecting on that and how I was thinking of myself as the most important person around the pool those small steps, those small things where you're like, no, I don't really want to. Where you yourself are now choosing to be the most important person in the room rather than recognizing others as the most important. Thinking, I just had such a rough week. I'm just, I just don't really want to swim I don't, I don't want to, to get in the water. I want to value myself above others, and I want to do what I want to do. But Philippians, the, the verse just before this says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In reality, this word interest is kind of a, a placeholder that we can put something else in. Do not look to your own interests of not being wet, but also look to the interests of others who like to swim. Do not look to only your interests of your financial affairs or your own property or your own family or your own health or your own reputation or your own education or your own success or your own happiness. Don't just be focused on those things. Don't just have desires for those things. Don't just work towards only those things. Instead, look to the financial affairs and property and family and health and reputation and education and success of others. Work towards those things. Have desire to see others succeed and do well desire to see others have joy that they did not have perhaps before. When we choose to stay outside of the pool, when we choose to stay high and dry and in the chair, we rob ourselves from experiencing the joy of others who have those interests. We rob ourselves 
with our self-centeredness and our selfishness, to the exclusion of the joy of others. Paul is continually calling Christians to, to live in this selfless mentality, this, this way where we are not seeking our own good, but seeking the good of others. And no amount of unity can happen without giving up our self-centered nature. No a part of unity, I read in one of the commentaries, can happen with our focus on individualism and even partisanship, it went on to say. Those were not my words, by the way. I didn't write down the author. Instead, we must be deeply concerned for the honor of one another. You could, you could put it this way. We had a whole series on it. The words of Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Living unselfishly towards others as you would want them to live unselfishly towards yourself. Have your interest be with them. Have your time and energy be focused on them. Have your, your joy made complete by seeing and experiencing the joy of others' interests. I read some examples of, of what this looked like, and one of the examples hit me square in the face again. If you're watching television and your child says, will you play with me, don't just think about how tired you are, but by an act of gospel-fashioned, Christ-exalting will, put the child's interest before the pleasures of your relaxation. Not all of you have children at home, so maybe that doesn't, doesn't really speak to you. But think about maybe other examples. What does selfless, selflessness in honoring, what does a gospel-fashioned, Christ-centered, exalting will put in our life that we perhaps would not have done before? Perhaps it's as we are driving and we see these yellow or these orange cones begin to, to close off one lane that our first instinct will be to let that other car in as a gospel-centered, Christ-exalting matter of will, allowing others to go before ourselves. Maybe it's as we're sitting there in the elevator, ready to go up to our building, tapping our foot, knowing we're going to maybe run late for our meeting, and you see someone walking your way, and instead of hitting the close button, you hold that door open as a gospel-centered, Christ-exalting way of modeling his will in our life. Maybe the gospel-centered, Christ-exalting way is is intently listening to another, even though we, we wholeheartedly disagree with what they're saying, we, we choose to listen instead of blurting out and interrupting. Maybe the gospel-centered, Christ-exalting way to live is showing kindness to that telemarketer that you really don't want to talk with that somehow can't take no thank you as an answer. 
in one of my meetings this past week, I heard a, a story of what I would call gospel-centered, Christ-exalting will. Uh, I met with an individual that, that often walks through neighborhoods and talks to, to neighborhood people, and, and she ended up being in this, this area that um, she noticed the kids were all outside and they were eating some sack lunches that they had picked up from one of the, the uh, pickup centers that uh, children who maybe have some food insecurity would, would get some from. And, and, and she was talking with these kids and, and some of their parents and, and then a gospel-centered, Christ-focused will kind of just happened when these kids said, hey, you must be really hungry. You're walking around and, and it's really hot. How about you take some of the food that we've been gifted with and, and you take some of that? gospel-centered, Christ-exalting in their life. What does that look like each and every day? Are there opportunities that we can have a gospel-centered, Christ-exalting will where we would normally have selfishness? Because the reality is we should really want to live that way. We should desire to see the joy on others' faces as they experience something perhaps that they haven't experienced before. That, that we would be willing to sacrifice of, of something of ourselves so that someone may experience the priority of their interest. Because that's where everything all started. Where Christ himself being in the very nature God did not use that to his own advantage. Where he humbly came as a servant to serve one another, to serve others, to show us this example so that our joy in our life may be made complete by his death on the cross. That by his suffering and sacrifice we would be brought forth into this new life of joy. And that we would just follow in his example to help others see that same joy, experience that same joy. Even the joy of some kids playing in the pool with their dad. Let's pray. Father, it's in our natural nature to want to have things our own way. It's, it's in our natural nature that, that we would, would want to prioritize ourselves in our desires over top of those even that we love. So work within us by your Spirit that we would have a gospel-centered, Christ-focused will in our life that would love others and care for another's enough to put their interests above our own. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.